Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. The volume. It's Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe and secure. Getting your money out is super easy. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And I love building those same game parlays. And FanDuel is now live in Ohio. So use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. 21 plus in select states, FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. Dial one 888 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Dial 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Dial 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. Dial 1-877-770-STOP in LA. Call 1-800-327-5050 or visit www.com M-A-H-E-L-P-L-I-N-E dot org slash problem gambling. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Dial 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Dial 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Saturday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great weekend so far. Stephen Curry 
snatched victory from the jaws of defeat against the Milwaukee Bucks tonight. We're going to talk about that game and three games from last night, including Joel Embiid and his nasty game winner against the Portland Trailblazers, the Lakers notching yet another impressive win without LeBron James, and then I have a couple of thoughts, a couple of basketball concepts I want to get into that I thought were interesting at the end of the Nets win on the road in Minnesota against the Timberwolves last night. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these shows and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And last but not least, before we get started, you guys have heard me talk about Game Time, the fastest growing ticketing app in the United States. If you're looking to get out to an NBA game or a college basketball game or a baseball game or an NHL game or a concert or even a comedy show, Game Time has amazing last-minute deals on tickets to all of these. I have never been to an NBA playoff game before, so I'm going to try to get up to Phoenix this year to see Kevin Durant and the Suns play in a playoff game just right up the road for me. Uh, Game Time is an incredible user experience. I know I'm going to find a great seat. I know I'm going to get a great deal on it. I've used it before and I've really liked it. I want you guys to check it out. No matter where you live, get out and have some fun this week. Download the Game Time app, enter your email, and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first order. Terms apply. Again, enter your email and the code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S, for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Again, Steph Curry. I, I th- That game was all but over. Down eight with less than two minutes left. You're being guarded by the best guard defender in the league, who did a really nice job on Steph throughout the game, who also, Drew Holiday, in the final minute, hit a tough contested three on the right wing. So you're basically dug in an 11-point hole effectively there. And Steph goes four for four on ridiculous shot difficulty to send the game to OT. Clay gets uh, uh, gets going and OT hits two shots to build a little bit of a margin. And then Steph closes the deal with a ridiculous three on the left wing and a driving layup. And Draymond also was magnificent defensively down the stretch. Got a key st- uh, stop on Brooke Lopez in the post. Had a really nice closeout on a Brooke Lopez three in the right corner. Uh, He had a pretty nasty ankle injury earlier in the game and battled through it. He was a plus 22 in this game. It was a vintage Warriors win, and that's why they've won so many games. They just understand all those little things that you got to do at the end of the games. This was a, you know, it's been a tough execution year for the Warriors on a bunch of different levels, a lot of different factors at play. And, you know, I... There was some bad intel that came out from the Andrew Wiggins thing. Uh, I think it was Anthony Slater, if I remember correctly. I hope I'm right about that. But uh, he had mentioned that there's a suspicion that Andrew hasn't even touched a basketball court in several weeks. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga, he's day-to-day with the ankle injury, but he's missing multiple games here. Gary Payton still hasn't played. So, like, go, especially going into a matchup like this against a Bucks team that is pretty damn good without Giannis. They were 9-5 and five coming into the night when Giannis sits out. Even without Giannis, they're still an unbelievable defensive team. They've got still Brooke Lopez, who's you know every bit of the defensive player of the year candidate that he's always been. Drew Holiday, one of the best guard defenders in the league, like we mentioned earlier. This was a tough game to win, even for the Warriors at home. And you know what was interesting is Golden State came in with a really good game plan, I thought. You know, one of the interesting things about the Bucs is with Giannis, 
They run the floor in transition like crazy on almost 20% of their possessions. And they're really effective there because of what Giannis can do in the open floor. But without Giannis, they are much more of a half-court team. They're, they're not a very athletic team once you get Giannis off the floor. And they're not a team that looks to run very often. And, you know, one of the kind of balances that takes place in a basketball game is how much are you willing to crash the offensive glass versus getting back in transition to contain a team that likes to get back. For instance, if you're playing against the Bucks with Giannis, like you need to get back and you need to build a wall. So you might not be able to be as aggressive to the offensive glass. I thought it was intentional. I would imagine it was part of the game plan, but Golden State was recklessly attacking the offensive glass. And I thought it was smart because when Giannis is off the floor, the percentage of possessions that Milwaukee looks to run in transition plummets down to like 13%, according to Cleaning the Glass, and they're way less effective on a points-per-possession basis when they run. They're just not a very good transition team without Giannis. And so I thought it was a really smart game plan. They had, I think they had like 18 or 19 offensive rebounds in this game, which is absolutely insane. It was the way they won in OT with all the extra chances that they got. They had a good game plan, but at the end of the day, they were still down 108 to 100 with less than two minutes left because once again, against that Bucks team, which is so big and so good defensively, I, I, I've talked about this a lot about, you know, because you guys know how much I believe in Steph Curry and Draymond Green. It's kind of similar to the way I've talked about LeBron and Anthony Davis over the years. I'm a huge believer in those two. I'm a huge believer in Steph and Draymond. But the reality is, is one of the things that we all can learn about the game of basketball is it is a team sport no matter what. And there are certain responsibilities that have to be checked on the floor. Steph and Draymond are both uh, below-average athletes for their position. And so you need to surround them with a certain level of athleticism. Like, even when we go back to the Warriors in their absolute prime, whether it was Kevin Durant or a in-his-prime Andre Iguodala or Harrison Barnes or playing with Andrew Bogut at center, there was a size and athleticism that went beyond their core that could help cover those bases. And it's just really hard especially in the modern NBA with how deep these teams are with talent to win when you're as unathletic as the Warriors are without Andrew Wiggins, without Gary Payton, without Jonathan Kaminga. So they were still in a hole there. And that's why I said this was snatching the victory from the jaws of defeat by Steph Curry. They were supposed to lose that game and Steph simply would not let them. The types of shots he was hitting there down the stretch it was putting the ball in the basket through sheer force of will. That last three he hit to uh, uh, match the one that uh, Drew Holiday hit, open floor, no ball screen, no nothing, just took Drew Holiday and hit him with the step back. Didn't get that much separation, but he got enough, and that's enough for him to get his shot off, and he willed the ball into the rim. Again, four for four down the stretch of that game with ridiculous shot quality. It was almost like Steph Curry just kind of felt the situation and went, we're not winning this game unless I just catch a heater right here. <laughs> and, he, and he tried like hell to do so, and he did. Again, it's going to be really tough. To, it's going to get harder for the Warriors here. They have a tough matchup with the Suns coming up at home who are playing really good basketball right now, even without Kevin Durant, Devin Booker's on a tear. And then they go back on the road, I think, for five games. And you know how the Warriors have struggled on the road. Now, this is going to be the thing. Is this going to be the moment that galvanizes this group? Are they going to be able to uh, pull together and get some wins on the road? I like to think from a motivational standpoint, that'll help. But the reality of the situation is without the athleticism of Andrew Wiggins, without the athleticism of Gary Payton, it's just going to be really hard for them too. I do think Andrew, uh, excuse me, Jonathan Kamingo will come back sooner than later, and that will certainly help things. But this group is going to have to be incredibly locked in 
down the stretch of this season to get out of the play-in because they are at a personnel disadvantage, a athleticism and height disadvantage almost every single night. And you know what? It might require Steph being all world good the way that he is in order to float them during the stretch, which, you know, that's what superstars do. And he's done it in the past, and I think he can do it again. I, I will say, though, as a basketball fan, that was fun. That, that was a fun end of that game to watch. And, you know, I, I, I will never stop believing in this group and what they're capable of when they're fully healthy. Because when it comes down to it, in a key moment, in a key playoff series, if I've got Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green, and Kevon Looney, and hopefully Andrew Wiggins. You know, that that it's just going to be really hard to bet against that group. You know, as I've kind of settled in, I've had the Bucks as my championship favorite for about a month or two now, pretty much since the last Steph Curry injury. Not because I don't believe in the Warriors when they're healthy, but just the reality of their predicament, which we just went over. And everyone else in the league has massive cre- uh, question marks. Like, you know, uh, Denver can't defend nearly as well as Milwaukee, and they're kind of on a slide defensively right now. Phoenix is missing their best player. The Lakers are missing their best player. Philly has no bench, and I have some question marks about Embiid and James Harden when we get to the postseason. Uh, I think Boston has the best chance, uh, but Milwaukee, I think, is just slightly better than them, and I trust them a little bit more. And not only that, Giannis is just by far the best player in that particular series should they ever get to that point. Now, we'll reapproach this when we get to April. Like, I expect to be able to see Kevin Durant with the Suns a little bit more. I expect the Warriors to hopefully get whole and put together some games in April where they look more or less like the version of themselves that we're going to see in the playoffs. I'm really interested to see what the Lakers look like if they can get four or five games in a row with LeBron James on the court with them. There's a lot of stuff that I want to see. I want to see how good, how well Denver's defending over the course of the last month of the season. Their personnel limitations are, are real on the defensive end of the floor. Like in most of their late round playoff series, they're not going to have nearly the same defensive personnel as their opponent. That doesn't mean that they can't win, but that means they have to be incredibly sharp in their details, like that go beyond athleticism and size. They're going to need to be super sharp in their execution defensively. I need to see that from them in the time leading up to the postseason. So we'll reapproach this when we get to mid-April. But as of right now, the Bucks are the safest bet. And I thought, you know, aside from some nightmarish late game execution tonight, Drew Holiday inexplicably dribbling into a turnover after that Brooke Lopez block and then looking off Joe Ingles in the corner on that final possession and Steph Curry making a really nice defensive play on him at the rim, but in the process, Drew leaving time on the clock. Like They made a lot of mistakes down the stretch of this game, but they have been a really impressive basketball team throughout this season. They seem locked in and ready, and unless I see some of those other teams get it together, um, in a bunch of different ways, I, as of right now, the Bucks are still uh, my favorite. Uh, but like I said, we'll reapproach that when we get to April. All right, let's move on to Blazers Sixers. So this was an interesting game in the early slate last night. Uh, the Blazers came out red hot from three. Anthony Simons made eight threes. Here's some trivia for you guys. How many players in NBA history have made at least nine threes in a game at least five times? Take a guess. I wish we had uh, to, we could insert some trivia sound. Uh, the answer is six. Now, uh, try to guess who those players are. Now, there's going to be the regular ones you would expect, right? Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Damian Lillard, uh, James Harden, the volume guy. But there's two additional guys: J.R. Smith and Anthony Simons. Literally, he's made nine threes in a game 
five times. He's actually one of the best heat check guys in the league. Um, although he was stuck on eight in that game. And they could have used one more out of him uh, under the circumstances. Last little bit of trivia. How many times do you think Steph has hit at least nine threes in a game? 39 times. 39 times. That's as much as all of the active guys on that list combined that have made at least five. So it's just, just another stratosphere for the greatest shooter of all time. Um, but down the stretch, the Sixers locked in on both ends of the floor. They held the Blazers to just five points in the final five minutes of the game. Um, and Joel Embiid hits the game winner. Uh, there was an interesting kind of sequence there where he was isolating Nurkic, but the spacing wasn't quite right. And uh, Doc Rivers called a timeout. And I was confused by it in the moment because I was like, oh, this is just going to give Chauncey Billups the opportunity to double team Joel. And he didn't double team Joel, left him on an island again, which gave Doc Rivers the opportunity to set up better spacing. Uh, on Joel's first uh, attempt, like they were a little bit crowded on him on the wings and on this on the play out of the timeout, they cleared the top of the floor and gave Joel the entire middle of the floor so that when he did that spin back towards the middle, he had more space to go. Again, if you do that same move and there's a shooter on the left wing, that guy can dig down and disrupt Joel in a way that he can't if it's vacated. So I thought it was a gamble from Doc because I thought he might have set Joel up for a double team, but it ended up paying off. And Joel Embiid, just a ridiculous high level of skill in that spin move. I went on with Mark Ryan with CBS uh, Sports Radio this uh, earlier this evening, and we were talking a little bit about the Kendrick Perkins thing. And, you know, what was funny is, like, I, 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 I think that there is actually a little bit of, like, a European type of bias that takes place where basketball fans just assume that European players are more skilled than American players. And American players are all uh, players are often characterized by their, you know, kind of tunnel vision in terms of isolation scoring and a lot of focus on their athleticism. And then the European players, it's all the passing and the skill and the flair. And like, I think that that gets a little ridiculous because there's no doubt that in Europe, there's a, a lot of players that play really well in terms of playmaking and things along those lines. But it's a very physical game over there, so isolation scoring is a little bit less impactful. The spacing's different, and you actually need to move the ball a lot, a lot more over there. So a lot of it's just the way they're play the, the way that they play growing up over there. But I would push back on that concept a lot. I think that American players are extremely un, underrated in terms of their skill level. And Joel Embiid's a great example of that. Like, yes, Joel Embiid's level of skill is very different than Nikola Jokic because it manifests more in scoring skill set. But his scoring skill set is miles and miles and miles ahead of what Nikola Jokic's is. Nikola Jokic is a very efficient scorer, but he does it a lot within the flow of the offense, and he's very good at creating advantages for himself. But he's not in the same stratosphere as a player as Embiid when it comes to that staring your man in the face and just getting a bucket over the top of him. And so I want to I want to do a better job, and I'm going to try to work on it on this show and kind of point it out when I see it elsewhere, but... The skill level of American players is insane too. Now, Joel Embiid uh, obviously has uh, came um, from overseas originally, but in terms of his basketball development, for the most part, it's taken place in the United States. And he's thought of in a lot of ways as an American player, even though he's not. So I want to be clear about that. I just think that Joel gets kind of lumped in with that group and Jokic kind of with the other groups. So I just wanted to kind of differentiate that a little bit. Um, but to be clear, like, Embiid's on a damn tear, man. And about two months ago, I was one of those people that thought Jokic was better. And 
I I I always have been gravitating towards playmakers. You guys know that about me. I gravitate towards perimeter players and I gravitate towards playmakers. And so even amongst the centers, I gravitated towards Jokic. Um, and then there were some specific things. I thought Embiid relied really heavily on foul baiting, which is not a thing that I like a lot. Um, and then obviously he hasn't played as well in the postseason as he does in the regular season. Those are two things that are going to kind of point me in opposite directions. But a couple of things. His perimeter jump shot is real. This is a huge sample size that's that's gone extremely well for him. He's not relying on the foul baiting nearly as often lately. He's drawing a lot of free throws just by dropping his head and going into the lane with a ton of physicality. And it just in general, there's like a demeanor with him that I've been on for months now. And, and James Harden, a fight, a competitiveness that is another level above what I've seen from him earlier in his career. Every single big game of late, he has shown up in, in a big way, especially down the stretch of games. These were a couple crazy numbers for you. In clutch situations, so when the game is within five points with less than five minutes left, he's scoring at a rate of 37 points per 36 minutes. So if you extrapolated his scoring out to a normal 36-minute game, it's like he's averaging 37 points per game focused within that clutch time situation, shooting 50% from the field, 36% from three, and 86% from the line. The Sixers have a defensive rating of 84.6 in clutch situations with Joel Embiid on the floor. He made every big play down the stretch as they beat the Denver Nuggets in a head-to-head matchup with Jokic on both ends of the floor. He made every single big play down the stretch in a big game against the Milwaukee Bucks including the eventual game winner in that three-point shot from the top of the key, and a bunch of monster defensive plays in pick and roll as a switcher and in drop coverage. Even in the Boston game that they lost at the buzzer to Tatum, he was magnificent on both ends down the stretch of that game. And then once again last night against Portland, just incredible on both ends of the floor against a red-hot shooting Portland team to get the win. I, I... and switching my stance. I two two months ago, I would have told you I thought Jokic is better than Embiid. I think Embiid has proven over the course of the last two months that he is a better player. I think his ceiling as an impactful shot maker, you know, downhill force drawing fouls at the rim, a defensive a, 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 on the defensive end of the floor, just another stratosphere ahead of where Jokic is. I think he's the better player right now. So I'm flipping that now. Again, I. I gravitate towards perimeter players, so I'd still take guys like Steph and KD and Giannis uh, over um, Jokic and Embiid, but I think Embiid is nipping on those guys' heels, and I do think he's better than Jokic right now. He's, I think he's proved that. All right, let's move on to the Raptors and the Lakers. This was yet another really impressive win for the Lakers. Uh, Toronto threw a great punch, too. They had come into the game 6-5 and five since they traded for Jakob Pertl, their first real center that they've had in a long time. Um, Nick Nurse played his starters together as much as humanly possible. I think they combined to play 27 minutes together. And that group was excellent, and they performed really well against the Lakers. Uh, OG Ananobi and Scotty Barnes both had amazing nights. They combined for 63 points on 33 shots. Uh, OG Ananobi knocking down every single spot of three he took. Uh, Had some really nice isolation plays in the second half. Scotty Barnes was just backing down the Laker guards into the lane for easy little hook shots and jumpers in the lane. He was awesome. It was just a really, really good punch from Toronto. They were frightening defensively. They locked in there at the start of the second half and held the Lakers to just five points in the first seven minutes of the second half. And then three adjustments from Darvin Ham, I thought, got the Lakers the win. So I wanted to kind of dive into the strategy of that for a minute. First of all, he went to his zone. 
This was very important because OG Ananobi in particular, Scotty Barnes in particular, little Pascal Siakam too, all of the big Toronto forwards were bullying the Laker guards inside to take little push shots over the top. Now, Toronto's a weird team because the Lakers are big too. Like, when the Lakers are healthy, when they have LeBron, and you go AD, LeBron, Jared Vanderbilt, they're a huge team. But even in that case, because of the way Toronto plays, AD's on Jakob Pertl, LeBron can guard a big forward, Jared Vanderbilt can guard a big forward, but that's there's three other big forwards out there. Between OG and Scotty and Pascal, like, one of them is going to end up being guarded by Malik Beasley or D'Angelo Russell. So from a matchup perspective, some of it is just how weird Toronto is. They are an uncharacteristically massive team that is playing like a 3-4 type of forward at the two-guard position just because that's the way they want to play. So some of it's a little unusual, but when when Darvin Ham went zone, it, it helped in a couple of different ways. First of all, it allowed... Anthony Davis to stay around the rim so that now when you're taking those short range little push shots and hook shots and 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 uh, turnaround jumpers and stuff now you're shooting them maybe over a smaller guard but most likely over Anthony Davis and a smaller guard or just Anthony Davis so Anthony Davis lingering around the rim was able to help also zone defenses require teams to execute at a higher level there's a level of positioning on the floor moving the ball around to get the zone to reverse sides a bunch of times getting that guy to the high post that can try to pull Anthony Davis away from the rim to open up stuff on the back line. There's a bunch of stuff within the zone that requires execution. And what's the biggest weakness for that Toronto Raptors lineup? Like when you've got Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, and Scotty Barnes, and Jakob Pertl, there's just not a whole lot of ball handling and shooting and basketball IQ. That's not a strength of that group. That is a sheer force of size and athleticism type of lineup. And so challenging their ability to execute was, I thought, a really smart strategy. It really stagnated that Raptors offense and allowed the Lakers to linger around long enough for them to break through offensively. So adjustment number one, going to his own. Adjustment number two, Darvin Ham went with three guards. And again, this is something that Ham's been criticized for a lot, so was Frank last year. But I thought it was an interesting adjustment. He went with D'Lo, Austin, and Dennis Schroeder down the stretch of this game. And I thought the main reason why is Toronto's rotations, their defensive rotations flying around the perimeter, especially out of their double teams of Anthony Davis, and they just doubled the hell out of Anthony Davis every single time he even tried to get into a position where he could catch the basketball, which is a big part of why I think he only had eight points. Um, but uh, because of how good Toronto was in their defensive rotations, you weren't breaking down Toronto on the first action. They needed multiple actions to get that opening to score, extending the advantage, that extra little pass here, that extra drop off there, that extra cut here. And the only way they were going to do that was by increasing the aggregate ball handling, shooting, and basketball IQ of that group. And so going with a group that had Anthony Davis and uh, Dennis Schroeder and um, Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell gave them the necessary amount of ball handling for them to be able to score. And then lastly, the last adjustment, Darvin Ham started running interchanges into every single pick and roll, like a screening action before the pick and roll. So one of the defensive adjustments from Nick Nurse in this game was he put Jakob Pertl on Jared Vanderbilt. Jared Vanderbilt, he made two corner threes in the first half, but like I think he was. Uh, he's he's going to knock down under forty percent of them t- typically, even though he's standing by himself out there, completely unguarded. So that allowed Jakob Pertl to linger around the basket. Then what he did is he put OG Ananobi on Anthony Davis and basically had him hug up onto him. Right. 
So because he was hugged up onto Anthony Davis, AD was not an option and the rim was not an option. And so really, the Lakers' best opportunity to score was to try to get separation for their guards coming over the top of the screen to hopefully get some opportunities for some pull-up jump shots. I thought that was their best opportunity to score. And so Darvin Ham started running some interchanges, flowing into the pick and roll to help those guards get separation. There were back-to-back possessions where D'Angelo Russell hit pull-up jumpers, a pull-up two and then a pull-up three, where what they did is a quick dribble handoff before D'Angelo Russell came over the Anthony Davis screen. Here's why that matters. Because with Pirtle on Vanderbilt essentially zoning up under the rim, and with OG Ananobi hugged up on Anthony Davis, they were switching all of the the screens between the three guards. Now, right after you switch, there's like a little bit of a delay before you're ready for whatever comes next, right? If I'm guarding you, you're about to go over a ball screen. I'm prepped for the ball screen. I see it coming. You start heading that way. I can position myself to kind of sidle up on top of the screener to try to fight over the top, right? Or even just lock and trail to apply back pressure. But what if I'm guarding the ball handler and they set a quick screen? Now I'm not guarding the ball handler, okay? Because we switched under Toronto's scheme. What if I'm guarding... The uh, the guy setting the the screen. Well, they like I think the two plays that I'm referencing, and I, I posted these clips on my Twitter feed. You guys can find them there at underscore Jason LT. But Dennis Schroeder comes down the floor, sets a dribble handoff. Now all of a sudden, Dennis's man is actually guarding D'Angelo Russell. In both cases, I think it was Fred Van Vliet, or Fred, it might have been Fred Van Vliet the first one, then Scotty Barnes on the second one. But what ends up happening there is in that brief second after the switch. If I'm guarding Dennis and I'm switching on to D'Lo, now I'm not ready for that ball screen because I was attention going this way as Dennis was dribbling that way. Suddenly, I'm guarding D'Lo going back this way into a ball screen. That little interchange and that brief delay, and you guys, again, I encourage you to go to my Twitter feed and watch the video because you can see it pretty clear. That little delay bought D'Angelo Russell a ton of separation coming over that Anthony Davis screen. And again, OG Ananobi is hugged up on Anthony Davis, so he's not helping. So if you could get over that screen and get separation from the on-ball guy, there's a wide-open pull-up shot there. D'Lo got two wide-open pull-up shots, knocked it down. There was another one later in the corner where they ran a similar thing involving AD. They had D'Angelo Russell on the inbounds play run over and set a hard pick on OG and Anobi. And OG didn't want to switch. But he had to because of a good pick. Anthony Davis set him up well, gave him a little bit of a shove. And Anthony Davis came right off the pick into a ball screen with, I believe, Austin Reeves. Okay? That all of a sudden confused Toronto because it was a three-man switch, right? I talk about this all the time, beating switching schemes with three-man actions because now no one knows who to guard, right? It's way lo- it's way less straightforward than I'll guard your man, you guard my man, Right? In the process, after D'Lo sets that pick, he quick pops out to the left wing. OG Ananobi hesitates for just a second because Austin Reeves is coming off that AD screen and he's open. And so OG lingers in at the top of the uh, at the top of the key to contain Austin. Easy swing pass to D'Angelo Russell, knocks down a three. Again, Toronto was frightening defensively at the end of this game. They were playing with a really smart scheme, sagging Yaka Pirtle off. Uh, ignoring Jared Vanderbilt, hugging up on Anthony Davis, doubling him every time on the catch, rotating out of it frighteningly well. Their only chance was backcourt skill, which they didn't have nearly as much of before the trade deadline, and smart actions to buy those guards the separation they needed to make shots. I thought Darvin Ham did a really nice job 
down the stretch of this game. I thought he's done a really nice job since the trade deadline. So I want to shout out him. Um, Austin Reeves also had his very best game as a pro, was magnificent in the second half of this game in particular. Man, when he had that dunk in that half-court set, when he uh, just cocked it back with two hands and threw it down, you could tell he was really feeling himself. It was really cool to see. You know, I've always been high on Austin Reeves as a role player. He has flashed high-level ball handling this season that I didn't even remotely expect uh, watching him last season. I always knew he had a little bit of that, like, second-side action, ability to make plays off the dribble, but, like, this is high-level stuff against high-level defenders that he's doing. This is real, I think. Austin Reeves is a very, very good basketball player. That was his best game of a, as a pro. Um, I've said it all before. I'm not going to get into it again, but the Lakers are really good. And all I'm going to say is if LeBron can come back and look like 70% of himself for a few games before the playoffs, I'm going to take a really hard look at them as a team that can come out of the West. They just check a whole lot of boxes like I broke down the other day. All right, really quickly before we get out of here tonight, I'm not going to spend more than just a couple minutes on this, but one of the two games, uh, one of the three games I watched last night was the Brooklyn Nets getting a win on the road in Minnesota against the Wolves. I've been watching a lot of Wolves lately because I'm fascinated by their young core. Um, I really like the Anthony Davis, Jaden McDaniels, Rudy Gobert pairing uh, as long as they can surround them with the right types of uh, players. Uh, but these were, you know, two mediocre teams and Brooklyn got a win. But I thought it was a great example of a small detail in basketball that I wanted to touch on. And, you know, we talked about this in the um, in the Lakers game. OG Ananobi, when he when he overhelped on that Austin Reeves drive and left D'Angelo Russell open, Austin had a little bit of an advantage coming over the screen, but it probably would have been a tough shot for him. And I think sometimes we obsess with shot quality uh, and we ignore the reality of the, uh, excuse me, we focus, focus so much on shot value and we ignore the quality of shot, uh, the uh, realities of shot quality. So for instance, like a lot of teams will be like, oh, like a layup is a, is a high percentage shot, high value shot. So we should take that away and concede a three, which is a lower value shot even if it's a higher value than a contested to uh like mid-range jump shot it's still a higher value than a rim attempt right but even then i think that a contested rim attempt is a much lower value shot than a wide open three and so a lot of times when these teams overhelp, and toronto's a classic case of a team that overhelps. but when you overhelp, you um you open up wide open shots on the weak side and those i actually think are the kinds of shot that gets a team in uh, kinds of shots that gets a team into rhythm. And so this happened on two key possessions at the end of the Minnesota game against the Nets and this is what cost them. They lost by one in OT. And there were two plays, one at the end of regulation, one at the end of OT where we saw this happen. The first one at the end of regulation, Rudy Gobert is guarding Spencer Dinwiddie and kind of has him contained. He had got, he had went up and under and went through with a step through, but Rudy Gobert was right on his backside. It was going to be an extremely difficult scooping layup with Rudy Gobert there potentially blocking the shot. Anthony Edwards is guarding Royce O'Neal on the left wing. And Anthony Edwards, for no reason at all whatsoever, overhelps and runs in and stops Spencer Dinwiddie from attempting his crazy wild scoop shot, but in the process concedes a wide open three to uh, to Royce O'Neal on the left on the right wing and he knocks it down. And it was funny because right after the shot, uh, I, by the way, I tweeted out both of these videos as well. So you can find those on my Twitter feed. 
right after the shot, Rudy Gobert and Kyle Anderson both throw their hands up like, dude, what are you doing? And the funny thing is, this happened to Rudy Gobert in overtime. Spencer Dinwiddie is driving on Kyle Anderson. Kyle Anderson has him contained. Kyle Anderson has body position in front of him at the rim and has the length and size advantage. It was going to be a super difficult contested floater. And Rudy Gobert abandons, I think it was Dorian Finney-Smith out of the left corner to corral Spencer Dinwiddie and concedes a wide open three that ends up being the shot that beats them. And Kyle Anderson, you've, I felt bad for him after the game. He just throws his hands up. It's like, what are you doing, man? And like, you know, so many times we get uh, we get caught up on personnel and we get caught up on, you know, scheme and, and we get caught up on a bunch of different things when we're talking about basketball games. But so much of it is just execution, not making the key mistakes. It is, I would imagine that it's not in Minnesota's scheme to overhelp uncontained ball handlers driving to the rim. But in that moment, if you make a poor decision as a help defender, it can literally cost you a game. Minnesota's been playing good basketball. They played well enough to beat Brooklyn, and two execution mistakes at the end of the game cost them. And I think that's just such an important thing that gets lost uh, when we're talking about teams. It's one of the big reasons why I've always been such a big believer in Golden State. They're one of the best execution teams in the league, even though they haven't shown it all, all the time this year. Why do you think the Miami Heat were one shot away from the NBA Finals last year, despite having significantly less talent than many of the teams in that conference? It's execution, it's coaching, and it's always doing the right thing on the pivotal possessions at the end of games. That kind of thing is how you win. And way too often, we do not factor that in enough when we're evaluating teams. Um, All right, guys, that's all I have for tonight. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support, and I will see you guys next week. The Volume. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at errands. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.